Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, now that the children have left, I'll fill in some of the background details to the story, which is not actually PG. The reason the king appeared to be a little bit bumbling and confused was because he was a partier, and he spends most of the book, shall we say, overserved. Queen Vashti, after the king had been partying for maybe 180 days, has an especially raucous night, and she was known for her beauty, and he wanted her to parade herself in front of his inebriated friends to show her off, and she knew this would be degradation and humiliation, and she refuses to go. She absolutely refuses. And for this, all of the men in power have a little freak out. And Haman says to the king, if the queen won't obey the king, what's to stop all of the women in the, in the entire Persian nation that you're ruling from refusing to obey their husbands? And this is also supposed to be hilariously funny, that the, the king has to then issue a decree that all men are the rulers of their own households because Queen Vashti had the nerve to stand up to him. And so he sends her away, he dismisses her. And then Esther is one of many, many, many young women who all enter the harem. And the king says, you know, I'll let you know which one of you pleases me the most, who will become the next queen. This is not a PG story at all. So, of course, it is Esther who is the next queen. She is beautiful and lovely and brave, and he has no idea that she is Jewish that it is her people who are oppressed and living in tents around the empire. And her cousin Mordecai, who had raised her, was a good and devout Jew. And when Haman, this Jafar-like character who was trying to build himself up, make himself a big deal, orders him to bow before him, he says, absolutely not. I will never bow before you. And this is why Haman says that all of the Jews will be exterminated. And to show how callous he is, he essentially rolls the dice. He casts lots to pick the date for the genocide. And so Esther has a hard decision to make. Will she boldly go to the king and say not only that she is Jewish, but then argue for the lives of her people? And it's Mordecai who gives her the strength and who tells her she might be chosen for such a time as this to be the one to save her people. So we turn to our story this morning in Esther from the seventh chapter. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. On the second day, as they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have won your favor, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given to me. That is my petition, and the lives of my people, that is my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been solely, sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have held my peace, but no enemy can compensate for this damage to the king. She's so clever, she brings him into it. It isn't just an affront to her and her people, it's an affront to him that his wife 
would be so persecuted. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has presumed to do this? Esther said, A foe and an enemy. And see, she's set up Haman, who's there at the party. A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king rose from the feast in wrath and went to the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that the king had determined to destroy him. When the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman had thrown himself on the couch where Esther was reclining. He's begging for mercy, but also in a funny twist, the king completely misinterprets this scene where Haman has thrown himself onto the couch where Esther is reclining. And he says, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the words left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbonara, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Look, the very gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, stands at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the anger of the king abated. Now this offends our modern sensibilities to hear of this execution, but we have to remember that in this funny play, in this story, which really was written for entertainment, this is dramatic irony when the ultimate bad guy receives the punishment he had designed for someone else, and everyone who's watching this would be booing and hissing at Haman, who has been finally bested. And all through the beginning of the book, the wealthy are attending parties and carousing and celebrating, and it describes all the opulence and the splendor. And now, toward the end of the story, who are the ones feasting? Well, Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the providence of the king, both near and far, enjoining them that they should keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same month, year by year, a two-day party now for the Jewish people. And the days on which the Jews gained relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and presents to the poor. And so to this day, this festival of Purim is celebrated, and it would seem to you as a Christian, if you went to your Jewish uh, synagogue neighbor's place of worship and you saw this festival, it would be like a combination of Halloween and Christmas and Mardi Gras all thrown together when everybody celebrates We would say what God has done, but here is another surprise. In this book of Esther in the Bible, God is not one of these characters. God's name is never mentioned once in the book of Esther. So now, what do we make of this story? How do we understand it? Well, one thing that we can do is to search for where God is in the story. If God is not written in as a character, does that mean God isn't there? Or does it mean it's a lot like our own lives when we struggle? Sometimes it's hard to identify where God is, but we have faith that God is there all along. We trust that God is working. So Esther is a freedom fighter. And in this book that I love by Rachel Held Evans, who sadly passed away far too young, I think two years ago, she includes the story of Esther in this book, Inspired, slaying giants, walking on water, and loving the Bible again. 
she says this about resistance stories and how funny this one is. She says, they laugh because like a thrown together middle school Purim play, the power of the empire is just a big show. In the end, the God of Israel, of Abraham, Moses, and Esther gets the last word. We say this too in Easter sermons, right? Our God is a God who gets the last laugh, a God of resurrection, a God of surprise. God gets the last word using the weak to humble the powerful. She writes, I include the story of Esther as a resistance story because this dramatic tale from exile and its reenactment each year in the Purim play sanctify satire as a ready weapon in the arsenal of holy resistance. Sometimes the best way to fell the beast is to look it in the face and laugh. Beneath the bared teeth and the bloodied claws lies a frightened little kitten insecure about his hair. This is a story to comfort us. She says, while Persia casts the lots, God holds history. And God can outwit even the most unpredictable regimes to deliver and preserve the vulnerable. We know through the scope of the Bible story that God does work in this way. In the Magnificat, Mary sings, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, just like Esther. God chooses her from her humble estate. She sings, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who, has, who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And in his mercy, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary knows the story of Esther, and she sees how God is working also in her own life to resist all of the powers and the forces of empire that seek to oppress and crush people and hold them down. And it is the same message that Jesus chooses to preach when he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah and says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. God works through people to topple the unjust empires. Last week, David preached about the words of Irenaeus and the message that he had, which is that each human being is the divine reflection of God, and reminded us that you will never look into the eyes of a person whom God does not love. Yes, God does even love the bad guys, and God seeks to knock them off their high thrones if they are oppressing anyone else. So as we try to join with Esther as freedom fighters, we can identify all of those forces that seek to crush people, that seek to separate us from one another, that seek to say that some people are worthy and some are not. So another message that I find in this story 
is the relationship between Vashti and Esther. I don't think they ever meet. But Vashti tackles a specific kind of oppression and resistance. It's very personal. It's very individual. It's just in her own life. Someone tries to belittle and shame her, and she stands up against it. She stands for herself. She refuses to be ground down. I think there are many instances when we need to struggle against something in our own lives that maybe no one even knows we're grappling with. But God is with us in that kind of resistance. And then enter Esther. Her resistance, her grappling saves all of her people. And it doesn't mean that there can only be one way of resisting or another. In the Gospel of Mark Jesus' friends gather around him, and they say to him, John says to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. See, he's already setting up an us and a them, and trying to say, can we work with these people who are doing things in your name, and they're doing good things, but they're not us. What do we do with them? Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a deed of power in my name will able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly, I tell you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. So what do we do? All of these modes of resistance, all of these different things to resist in our own lives, all of these empires, powers to topple for the protection of the community. How do we get ourselves free? How do we get the community free? Well, we can laugh at it and we can work together. We can say whoever is not against us is for us, and we can acknowledge that this is collective work for all of us to do, no matter how we're choosing to do it. You might know that there are people who are Latino or Latina who show up at Black Lives Matter rallies with signs that say, tu lucha es mi lucha, your struggle is my struggle. And I think that that is so powerful and so true. What Vashti knew, what Esther followed through with, is that if anyone is being ground down, your struggle is all of the struggle of everybody who's trying to overthrow the powers of injustice. There is individual freedom and collective freedom. And for the collective freedom, how many different ways are there that we as a community resist? We don't have time to name them all, but we are working so hard to overthrow the powers of white supremacy, to engage in the unerasure of the first peoples that even our own spiritual ancestors engaged in. We are working with Operation Hope to help house people in our community and keep people from going hungry. All of this work we can do, and we can do it together. And in all of it, the most important thing to remember is even when we don't see God working, we trust in our God, who loves to have the last laugh, who can work through any one of us, even an orphan from an oppressed people in a distant land, God can use each and every one of us to bring down the powers of injustice 
and help us all live into God's vision of justice and peace for all people. Thanks be to God.